Hi, I'm Holly Elmore. And I'm Alex Frieder, and this is the Turing Test, Harvard Effective Altruism student podcast, bringing new perspectives and fresh ideas on how to do the most good for the world. Our theme is the ideological Turing Test. Economist Brian Kaplan coined the term the ideological Turing Test in 2011, explaining that if someone can correctly explain a position but continue to disagree with it, that position is less likely to be correct. And if ability to correctly explain a position leads almost automatically to agreement with it, that position is more likely to be correct. So, Holly, who are we testing today? (laughs) Brian Kaplan is an economist and professor of economics at George Mason University, a research fellow at the Mercatus Center, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and a frequent contributor to Freakonomics, as well as publishing his own blog, EconLog. He's also the author of the books The Myth of the Rational Voter, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, and the case against education. He is a self-described economic libertarian and anarcho-capitalist, but in his popular works, I mostly think of him as a contrarian. Fans of Brian's blog may already know that he coined the phrase ideological Turing test, to which we owe the show's title and theme. I should note that this interview between me and Brian is nearly two years old from June 2017. Julia Edspar, a Harvard College student who is new to the team, has graciously helped us get editing and distribution back up after I was unable to do them for some time. So I usually start by asking about career mm-hmm. trajectory, but I actually did not find that much about your earlier ah. positions online. Ah. I do. It does seem like your university has a lot of interesting, unusual things mm-hmm. going on. Like there's a lot of people very online, very um, present and in a public way engaging. Um, so I'd like to know if you have any thoughts about that. And then if you have any thoughts about how your early career led up to being here and mm-hmm. big ideas and public engagement. Sure. Well, I mean, in terms of my career, it all goes back to Tyler Cowan. I met him the summer before I started <laughs> graduate school. And then when I was on the job market three and a half years later, he, he was there to very heavily push me to the rest of the faculty who had no idea who he was. And he really got mm-hmm. me the job. And actually... He was, then, he was then instrumental in raising a ton of money, which transformed the department tremendously. And it's you know, like, like almost everyone who's here now has actually been hired since I showed up. There's only a few people who were still here from, from uh, before I arrived. So I, mean, wow. I think at least, I want to say like three quarters of the faculty have been hired since I was hired. And almost all of that through, or like with, 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 with the help of fundraising where Tyler was the key man. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't planning to ask this, but uh, about key influencers, what do you think? <laughs> uh, people like, how often do you think this is the case that it's just a couple influential people that transform a department or get a set of people working? Yeah, that's a great question. So my view is that if you're weird, then it's really important. So I, I, I see <laughs> myself as a niche market, like most economists would have either very little interest in what I'm doing, or they would just think I'm crazy or just say that's not really economics at all. And with them, I'm never going to have any chance. So for me, it's very important to find a champion, someone who's enthusiastic, someone who thinks differently to go and support me. And Tyler was the person, among others, but he was you know, the person who was most inf- uh, who really got me this job and you know, helped me out in every possible way. And he's also been great at raising money and helping build the department. If you're more normal, then I don't think so. So most economics departments aren't raising any significant amount of money. Who'd want to get the money? They're so boring. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so, and as you know, if what's going on at most places, um, you know, like there, 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 it's you know, again, there's, if there's not much fundraising to go on, then there's still a little bit of an element to building an apartment. But again, most people 
are sufficiently normal that if you replace them with someone else, it would be all that different. But if you're weird, then it makes a big difference. Replacing the weird person who's your patron with a randomly selected person can be ruinous. So, so, I mean, so like for the typical department, I don't think it matters that much. But for anything that benefits me, it matters a lot. I've never really gotten anywhere without some champion sticking their neck out on my behalf. And I'm lucky that they've done it. Okay, so what's weird about you and why would they uh, deny that your ideas or what you're interested in are science? Right. So what is what is weird about me? So I guess I would just start with iconoclasm, which is my, my reaction whenever people talk about how great something is, is to say, what's so great about it? I don't see that that's so great. You know, and like Nobel Prize winners, like I'm the kind of person who will go through a list of Nobel Prize winners in economics and say, eh, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? That He's okay. He's pretty good. That guy's good. The rest of them, eh. All right, so I'm, I'm that kind of person. I've always been that kind of person. Uh, you, people can say it's a sour grapes, but you know it's just not the kind of thing that's really very interesting to me. Uh, you know, the, you know, like you know, so much, so much uh, to me is just the lunch test. Would I want? Would I enjoy having lunch with this person? Like, like talking about ideas. If so, great. If not, then I have trouble thinking that their work's really all that important. It's like, well, it's not exciting, not very interesting. Doesn't really change the life of anyone who's interested in ideas. So. Why is it that you're so important? I don't see it. Uh, so the iconoclasm is a big deal for me. Uh, and again, of course, you know, in our societies, you know, some of the main things that you can be iconoclast about are like you know, popular opinions. So it, it is you know, the normal thing, of course, if you're a politician, especially, is to say, you know, the American people think this. Subtext: the American people must be right. How can most people be yeah. wrong about something? <laughs> Whereas, you know, I just tend to think that what most people think is wrong and silly. And, you know, that, so that's, that's another way in which, uh, in, in which I'm different. Uh, and then, you know, just there's a, so like the topics that, I, the topics that I choose are like almost always there's a theme of I'm just saying something that's very unpopular. And indeed, I would just say <laughs> that if what I'm saying is not controversial, it just generally wouldn't interest me. I'll say, well, look, if what I'm saying is just obvious to everybody, uh, then let somebody else do it. I don't feel like doing it. There's plenty of people who can do that, but I'm going to be, I mean, I, I see myself as someone who takes orphan ideas and say, look, this, the, this idea has a lot of potential. No one else was paying much attention to it, but I'm going to take this little baby of an idea and raise it up to health and to adulthood and show that it can really, that it really has a lot of value that's, that's largely overlooked. I Meaning that then again, I think just, you know, just attitude, just, you know, speaking my mind more than is generally accepted. Uh, so that, that, that that's that's a way that I'm weird. So I guess I mean like you know like other things. You know I'm, I'm an economist. I had to do a ton of math, but I'm not the kind of economist who sits around saying math is so beautiful, math is great. To me, it's just a tool. I don't have any strong emotions about math. Whereas again, especially when I was in grad school, there were many economists who, in every other way, they had no soul for poetry. But they would start going, "Oh, <laughs> the derivative is the most beautiful thing in all the world." <laughs> No, like a, a baby is the most beautiful thing in the world, not a derivative. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? So, I mean, you know, the, these are these are at least some of the ways in which people just people think that I'm weird. And then, you know, while I, you know, so I have published in a lot of academic journals. Once I could get away with it, I tried making the switch to books, which I just find a lot more intellectually satisfying and fulfilling, and you know, you're still you know much more likely to actually get readers and to change the way that people think. And economics is very much a journal field or an article field, not a book field. So that's another way that a lot of economists would say, he's publishing these books. Like, like, and if I say, well, it's with Princeton University Press, they'll say, yeah, it's still a book. Books don't count. 
So there's 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 the very much that that attitude. You know how like different academic academic disciplines vary on whether their book or article fields. Economics is very much an article mm-hmm. field, and to me, articles just aren't that satisfying to write. Usually, you know, I did a bunch of them, but you know, it's like you're so confined within this you know short amount of time. You have to make you know, sort of get in, make your point, get out. You can't really address bigger questions. And you have to be so worried about, am I going to be saying anything that a referee is going to object to? i got to take that out. There's no room for sides. There's no chance really just to say, well, look, here's what I really think. Can't do that in an article. Whereas in a book, I mean, like in the book that I've just finished, I have a section called What I Really Think, right? And to me, that's fun to write that. So you're like, yeah, I'm going to tell you what I really think. Like when I read a book, I want the author to just say, look, uh, here's my actual view. No, like, 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 and I'm just going to tell you and be honest with you and you don't like it and you don't like me now that's okay but i owe it to you as a reader just to be candid i'm in a journal field myself uh-huh. and i feel like the kabuki of it is so you know just like so it, it we're always like uh-huh. making all these inferences about okay so based on this and this and this and i assume that because of the referees they did they said yeah. this that you have to go through like five filters to get to like yeah. What maybe do they think is most likely to be true? Sure, sure. Also, what actually happened? You get this mm-hmm. like idealized, you know, mm-hmm. possible the methods. I'm a biologist, so it's ah. just try to recreate mm-hmm. something from the methods in a paper. You can't. But I'm a big hobby horse about scientific publishing. But I know you're also a big fan of blog publishing, mm-hmm. and I wonder how you think that compares to books. So they have a lot of the same advantages of just being a place where you can go and speak your mind candidly and put your cards on the table, and I like that a lot. And also where you're not, uh, where, where you can talk about you know, like almost any subject you want. Excuse me. Uh, there, you know, I guess the, you know the big difference is just that in a blog post, there I, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll often do topics where a lot of people just wouldn't even know where I'm coming from, and I'll try to include a few links, so like if someone's interested, but. I mean, I'll just assume a lot more knowledge in a blog post. When I write a book, I always try to write it so that any intelligent undergraduate who knew nothing about the subject could follow me. And on the blog, sometimes I do that, but a lot of times I'll just, you know, like today I just have some new post on Robert Putnam's work on trust. And I, if you don't know any statistics, for example, you just couldn't possibly understand most of what I was saying. But... Uh, so, so, that, so that's the difference there is you can just uh, you know do you know you can do a narrower topic and you know, assume, you know and again like basically rely upon the reader if you really care about this you're going to have to go and get up to speed but yeah otherwise I mean I, I see uh, so, you know a lot of similarities I guess the other thing is for a book I just go through a crazy number of drafts I'm I'm not a perfectionist but I'm like the like a ninety percent perfectionist or ninety five percent ninety five percent perfectionist. Mm-hmm. And in the blog, there I feel more relaxed and like I can put up something where I, I mean, I try, I try to check like every fact, check every source, but still I'll put things up there where I'm more tentative or where I mean, I make comments when I haven't done a full literature review to make sure that I'm not missing anything. Whereas when I'm writing a book, I am very scrupulous about just saying, like, well, let's try to try to read everything that's relevant to this, written in any field. Uh, you know, for empirical work, I'll usually draw the line in like the last twenty years. So I, you know, but. Uh, and then also to say, like, are there any other names under which people study the subject? Uh, so that's something that I do whenever I'm doing a book. I make, I bend, you know, really try to bend over backwards just to read everything that anyone might have said that is on that topic. For a blog post, I will, you know, do a first pass, but I, I'm just not, not, not that thorough. Once I actually wrote a blog post, which turned out to be identical to a blog post I wrote a few years ago. Uh, and, and, we, and it had five points, and the five points were exactly the same. I wasn't sure if that should make me feel good or bad. 
But <laughs> this that's the kind of thing that makes me terrified of unintentional plagiarism. Because mm-hmm. if you can do it to yourself, you could do it to others. I I worry. Possibly. Well, well, so I mean, I didn't use the same words. So yeah. I mean, it's the same five points, but not the same words. Um, I mean, I guess if you really ab- it's still impressive. Yeah, yeah. If you absorb somebody else, then you know enough. Then maybe you could. I don't know. The only examples I've seen of plagiarism are so cut and dried. Um, um, so you know, my memory is just not that good. So I, f- I feel safe, but uh, I guess I'd be a little, very slightly worried. But uh, <laughs> my yeah. advisor says the same yeah, yeah. thing. He's been in yeah. it for like forty years now, and he says he'll just write the whole same paper practically. Yeah. <laughs> like it'll be a little bit better, but he'll go to like do a literature review, and then there, <laughs> he's already written this paper. I guess the I guess <laughs> the main reason to, re- to really rest easy is there's been quite a bit of research on does anyone on Earth have a photographic memory, and the answer is just no, no one does. <laughs> so. No one, no one on Earth has ever d- demonstrated an ability to read a page and have it taken away from them, and then and then recite that page back. So, I mean, like, like there are con- there are yeah. Co- yeah so, <laughs> like, like uh, and there, you know, there are contests of memorizing strings of numbers or letters where people pr- prepare for that, but that's not the same as being able to memorize a page of text, which is which is actually much harder. And mm-hmm. you know, so no, and like, and so you know, since no one on Earth can do that, the idea, the the odds that you will do it accidentally. Uh, seems really low. So again, as long as plagiarism means word for word, then it's you know you're not going to do it accidentally. I just trust in my good intentions. Yes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so last question about your or this just the circumstances of your career. It's not just Tyler Cowen that's at George mm-hmm. Mason, right? It's also Robin Hanson oh, sure. now. Um, so what's your what's what's it like to work with them at work, oh. and what's your biggest disagreement? Well, Rob Robin's my best friend here. I just love Robin. He's a wonderful person. I have a slogan, which is that all good people love Robin Hansen. You know, he's <laughs> he's you know he's just a, just a wonderful wonderful friend, and you know I always like any minute that I have with him is precious to me. Biggest disagreement. So. I mean, I guess like so. Probably the very the root one is like is physics all there is. So, and I think Robin really does believe that. And I just think that there's many important things that are not in the physics textbook that are not derivable from the physics textbook. And Robin will just say, you know I'll say like the fact that I feel pain that like that creatures feel pain that's not in any physics textbook. It's not derivable from anything there that I have these con- that I have these conscious experiences. And Robin will say, if you really understood the, the true meaning of pain, then you would understand you can derive it from the physics textbook. And to me, he'll say, no, no, you couldn't. Like, like how, how are you going to go through and talk about brains and neurons and atoms? And then eventually, last step, I'm in pain. I feel pain. Right? So, like, you know, so I am, in, you know, philosophically, I'm a very strong dualist. I just think that there is a fundamental difference between mind and matter. And there's there are obviously connections, but there's no logical relationship between them. It's all got to be empirical. So you know, like you know, intuitively, I would say, look, you know, someone could do all the research on the brain they want, and yet, and they could have everything hooked up in my brain. And if I'm in pain, and they say no, our scanners say you're not. I say I have an infallible ability to say you're wrong. There's nothing you can, you know, nothing like if I feel pain, I don't care what someone else says. I'm in pain, and that is definitive of being in pain. Uh, not the saying, but actually the experience of pain is what's de- what defines being in pain. And Robin, you know, like you know, his background is in natural science. He has no patience for the philosophy of like uh, you know, like the philosophy of this kind. So I mean, certainly, you actually he has a master's in philosophy of science, which again to me is not real philosophy because it takes for granted a very particular story of philosophy, which I just think is wrong or like, like incomplete anyway. Like, but incomplete about the most important things. So- 
materialism or uh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so essentially just takes takes materialism in some in some sense for granted and i just say look it's just false like yeah like yeah every waking minute of my of, of my existence says that it's false and that there's something more going on well does it say it's false necessarily or does it say that it's yeah okay? well it depends upon what your version of materialism is is if it's if it's not in the physics textbook or derivable logically from the physics textbook it doesn't exist then I'll just say that's false because I have all these conscious experiences which are not derivable from anything in your book. If you're if you're say, well, it doesn't say that you'll have them, but it doesn't say you won't have them. So in that sense, there's no conflict. I'd say, well, that's a pretty big thing for your theory to not be able to explain. In fact, you know, as, as, as I was tell, telling Robin the other day, you know, I see these conscious experiences are the only important thing in the universe. Nothing else really matters. You know, if we could be really happy, but uh, and like you know, there'd be you know, like ha- you know, the world. Could be, if there could be a lot of happy people having great conscious experiences, but the physics of the world were totally different, that'd be fine. But on the other hand, if the physics of the world were exactly what it is, but everyone was miserable, that would be terrible. So mm-hmm. you say, at least really, the conscious experiences are the thing that matters. I guess the question is just, could that actually be the case, or would there have to be some difference in the physics right. in order for consciousness right. to feel different? So that interesting, you know, very interesting question. But at least in many of my arguments with Robin, it's I think he's saying something strong. It's interesting that you've come down so yes. hard on that side. Yes. Well, I mean, so I'll say, you know, like, so Robin's earliest background is in science, and mine is philosophy. Actually, that's really what what, mm-hmm. what you know got me interested in social science is coming from this philosophical angle of you know, reading your political and social philosophers, you know, it's like Locke and Hobbes and people like that. So, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've had science classes, but to me, it was never very interesting. You know, to me, what's interesting is, you know, the human experience and, and you know, and like, you know, and social interaction and, you know, human society. These things to me are, are fascinating. But like, what's inside of a rock? It's like, well, if you can do something for humanity with it, great. Otherwise, I don't know. I could just live forever and not know like how, like what rocks are made out of. Wouldn't really you know, change my mind about anything important. So this does tend to spill over into many other questions. So like you probably know Robin's uh, age of M. And again, to me, the question of well, are these uh, like are these artificial intelligences really conscious? Do they actually have experiences or not? Is the fundamental question. And I say, if they're not, then then really they have no value except as as uh, something useful to biological humans, and or yeah, yeah, yes, system. or or threats, <laughs> right? I mean, but but you know, Robin is so you know, to my mind is so weird about this that just imagine the Terminator scenario where your M's come around and exterminate all of mankind. How bad is that? And his answer <laughs> is if, you know, rhetorically he said, "Oh, that would be terrible." Then I said, "Okay, so let's just rank the current world, continue forever." A world where the M's, you know, where the M's are added to humanity, and the world where the M's kill us all, and like, what are your rankings of those states of the world on a scale from zero to ten? And if I remember, he said, "Well, the current world's like a two out of ten. That we just continue forever with biological humans doing our biological thing, and we're and if the M's go and come along and don't kill us, that's like a five out of ten. And then if the M's come along and do kill us, that's a four point nine out of ten. And I like." And then he said, but that's a big point one because it's for the universe. I said, like, <laughs> but still, like, so if, like, these robots come alive and murder every human being, that's, like, still a huge improvement over the status quo. Is that on the assumption that the M's are conscious? Um, so to Robin, that's not even very important. But I think, so, like, when really pressed, I think that he does think, well, I think what he says, they're as conscious as anything else. And as to, although he, I think he also has the view that really the word is, bar- is barely meaningful anyway. 
So okay, well, what about suffering? <laughs> so again, like, so again, like you, I, of course, you. I don't know if you have interviewed Robin, but I mean, yeah. Not but yet. my my, I think what do you say about this? Well, so like suffering is basically just a tendency to act in a certain way in response to certain stimuli. And so when I say no, it's not. I mean, it, mm-hmm. pain generally or suffering causes behavior, but it's not the same thing as the behavior. A person could be suffering in silence forever. It's happened. You know, there are people who are just super depressed their whole lives, but they put on a happy face and they die. And that was the story of their life. No one ever knew it, but they were suffering. Right. So and it wasn't a stimuli that caused them to do anything other than pretend to not have the feelings they really feel. Uh, So, again, to to my mind, this is a division between someone whose ideas start out in in, natural science, especially physics for Robin and someone like me who start out in philosophy. Where, again, you know, to me, like you know, like you know, Descartes just reading that and saying, "Yes, you really can't be wrong about what you're feeling." There's there is a short list of things where the could individual not, is infallible. But could that not occur in a materialist world where what? So it just could you not be in a materialist a materialist world where there are subjective islands where from which you can't tell the difference? But I mean, that just seems to me the most likely thing. Well, again, so it depends upon what you mean by materialist. If you mean that stuff is deducible, everything has to be deducible in principle from what's in the physics textbook. Then I say that kind of materialism is. Well, is when you destroyed. say the physics textbook, do you mean our current knowledge? Because like, that's the thing that strikes me as the problem. Like if we had full knowledge, I'd be more confident yes. that you could say that. Well, so let, let me put it this way. So like, pain is the kind of thing where if you didn't feel it, it would never occur to you that anyone feels it. It's the kind of thing where you learn about it from the, ins- uh, you know, from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And there is this thing that is so weird about something like pain where like, once, once you're aware of your own pain, it's like, what could convince you that you aren't in pain? I would have to stop feeling pain. That's the only thing that convinced me. There's no outside person, even in principle, who go and say, I've, I've measured things and you're not really in pain, which is just, you know, like radically different from almost anything else in the world. And of course, it's you know different from our knowledge of anyone else's pain too, which is always just based upon testimony and analogy and that kind of thing. Uh, well, but, here's a slightly different uh-huh. question, but um, I don't know if we were going to go here. But I mean, I'm, have I'm happy, you ever? I, we ha- will yeah, get back I'm to happy to, to do this all, all day. Really, I like it. I like to ramble, so yeah. I'm sorry. But if you want me to no, get no, off no, of no, something, no. That's, let's keep um, going. Uh, so a slightly different question, but um, inspired by that one. Um, I mean, have you ever, in retrospect, thought that from my first person like experience of something actually wasn't what at the time I thought it was? I mean, mm-hmm. not just realizing that you were mistaken about some external fact, mm-hmm. but um, I didn't even really feel the way I believed I felt, you know, that your beliefs about the experience aren't the same as the experience themselves. No, I mean, I think what I would say, I, I, you know, I would definitely say that there have been times when I have hastily described an experience, uh, you know, to, yes, you know, to myself, right? So, mm-hmm. and then, and, and, and then again, you know, it's like, you know, even at the time, I mean, so what am I feeling right now? And then I might have to think about it, actually. But uh, so in, in that sense, you know, like, like I will say, you know, there are mental states where you're right. You could be, you could inaccurately describe them. And yet if they're simple enough and, or, or if you describe them as a range, it's in the pain family somewhere. There's, you know, the, you know, the pain, you know, there's many different kinds of pain actually, but still you say, look, I'm feeling something which is definitely pain. And it's like, like, it's not near the edge of something. It's not like. You know, like a, a like a cat is scratching you, and you're like, "Does it hurt?" So I have to think about: Does it really hurt, or is it just kind of annoying, or like, is it actually painful? 
But again, still, it's, you know, still, still seems to me that there are there's a wide range of experiences that are that fall so so clearly in the category that again, I say like, there's no way I'm wrong about that. I could never be wrong that that sunburn hurt, right? Or like, mm-hmm. I mean, again, like crucially at the moment, of course, you know, memory itself, memory is fallible. So then, and mm-hmm. that, and that's where you know, some, you know, you think about this. If someone said that you're misremembering something, then then like you're like, hmm, that seems hard to believe. But there are a bunch of things they could show you that would change your mind. Like if they had if they had camera footage. You know, that could convince you that your memory was incorrect. But I mean, like, what could they ever show you, even in principle? Imagine the most advanced machine ever created that would change your mind about being in pain at a, at a given moment in time. Well, are you familiar with experiments of getting people to feel embodied in different, like in a virtual reality body that's standing in front of them mm-hmm. and getting them to like feel the experience? I mean, they really felt it. Mm-hmm. I, t- I agree on, on yeah, that yeah. point. But it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, and a lot of effective altruists, I guess we can bring it back, mm-hmm. are really interested in mindfulness mm-hmm. meditation. Sure, and sure. It, it's a lot about even interrogating your first yeah, sure, experience sure. in this way. And I find myself sort of being skeptical of like, can you? Because I, when I'm in pain, I can sort of, yeah, in that moment that I thought I was in pain, like that moment's forever. But I can sort of look at it differently mm-hmm. and feel it differently. Mm-hmm. So even then. Right. I, well, you can tell yourself that the pain served a purpose. Right. That's yes, not what it yes. is. Right. So... <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah, so now, I mean, so again, like, like I also have this. Uh, well, I guess so. You're 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 Harvard, right? Right. So, right. Mm-hmm. So, Saul Kripke hasn't been there for a long time. Now that I think about it, but this, you know, the sense of personal identity, where key part of personal identity is this egg, this sperm, this moment. That's the per that that you know the person comes from there. So that you know, so my my view is like any small change in my life would have changed the kids that I had. And since mm-hmm. I'm very attached to these kids, this, this is the kind of thing where mm-hmm. I can say, well, like any bad thing that happened to me before, but for that thing, I wouldn't have these kids. And so, and since I'm really happy to have them and I couldn't have them if I changed anything prior to their conception, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to view, I'm going to evaluate the whole thing positively. But yeah, that's not the same as saying I wasn't in pain. I did have that sunburn. Without that sunburn, I'd have different kids. But uh, the sunburn hurt. Um, well, what about Tyler? We'll finish it out. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, so, uh, so, what about him? Or what's it, what, what's what's Sorry. he like? Biggest disagreement with Tyler. Disagreement I know a lot of these are public. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's harder because you know. So, you know, Tyler often describes Robin as a monist, someone who's got a single theory to explain everything, and I think that's close to true anyway. That's that's reasonable. Tyler is. Very much a pluralist. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of different things that he takes seriously. Uh, I mean, sometimes I want to tell him, like, you take like anything you take seriously in the world, except anything I say. Which, you know, according to you, everything I say is wrong. But every other person on <laughs> earth, like, they're treated respectfully, but not me. If I say it, it doesn't. It, it's crazy. Uh, you know. So you know, we, we we've had tons of great time together. I always love talking to Tyler. It's a lot of fun. Uh, in terms of like, what's our fundamental disagreement? Like if I, if if you could explain that, so I mean I think he might he might just just say like Brian likes simple theories and I like complex theories or something like that. Okay. I mean I think that, you know there's there's there, there is something to that, but I mean in my my view is you know like like I'm happy to have complex theories if complexity is justified, and I think he like deliberately complicates problems and <laughs> uh, and like even like if there's a very simple story that actually seems to work well I think he will you know, like, un- like just try to resist that and try to say, and try to add on complications which I say aren't really very relevant so uh, there's that but again like like with, with Robin I think it's much easier to sort of see like a single root disagreements and with Tyler it's more all over the place again like in, in a way I might say that like over time 
the like you know sort of sort of the the mentality of the pundit has become more and more aggravating to me and more and more amenable to him. So you know again just uh, you know like the mentality of of you know make, of, of making a lot of claims where sentence by sentence you can't really evaluate it. There's no like there's the adjectives are deliberately chosen in order to make sure that you can never be shown to be wrong. And to me, that's just terrible. And like you just shouldn't do that kind of thing. You know, like you like you like you should strive at least to go and say things where you are sticking your neck out, you know, like like humbling yourself before the truth and just realizing like I'm not omniscient, I'm not infallible about anything but my pain. A few things like that. <laughs> Everything else, I could be wrong, and I sh- and I'm worried about being wrong. And what can I do to deal with this worry? Like, what's the responsible way of handling the my, my like this recognition of my own limitations and my own problems, and like just the fact that I'm just just one person? What what can I do to you know to find out to you know to like you know just to rate myself in a non-corrupt way? To like find out well how like sir this makes sense to me, but how true is what makes sense to me? And well, one solution you've arrived at is uh, taking the better oath. Yes. So can you sure. uh, tell the listeners what that is and then why you think that's a good solution? Sure, sure. Yeah. So the better's oath, uh, you know, like ripped off from Game of Thrones, uh, the Night Watch Oath. <laughs> but, you know, you know it, it's, it's essentially this, saying like for any statement that you make, to be, uh, to be willing in principle to, uh, to make a bet based upon what you've said. To try, you know, and if what you said is vague, to try to make it more precise – and if when and if when challenged, you think that you're wrong, just to say, all right, fine, I retract that, or I'm going, I'm going to advocate a toned down version of that. But you know, it you know, comes down to being willing to go and put money and odds on any statement that you make, and you know, not just selectively, but to say, look, I am on my honor at all times. Anytime someone challenges me, I'm going to, uh, and say, look, would you bet on that? And say, all right, well, so what did I just say? First of all, let me make sure I just didn't say something really <laughs> stupid. Which you know, like you know, just like everybody else, I, I speak in exactly, and you know, so I I very rarely say always, but once in a while, and always will slip out. And if someone says always, like okay, not actually always, but yeah, I can think of three exceptions right now. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but you know, but but um, you know, so be, but being on your honor anytime someone calls you out to go and state state uh, uh, to go and rephrase your claim in a more specific way, so that uh, where you've got. First of all, you need a timestamp. Well, yes, if you're saying that France will be destroyed, all right. Well, if you don't have any date on that, then I guess that's true, right? So, like billions of yeah. years from now, France is going to be destroyed when the when, when the sun engulfs the earth or whatever. Like you know, in order for any statement even even really to be describing the world, you've got to put a date on it by a certain date, and then or what would count as destroyed, right? And that's where uh, you know, like, well, how about you know, a certain number of people have to die or the or like, like or the constitutions replaced by a new by a new by a new constitution. I mean, these are two very different senses of de, of the destruction of France, right? In one sense, France has been destroyed many times. They've had multiple constitutions. Mm-hmm. In another sense, the inhabitants of France have never been wiped out entirely, so it's never been destroyed in that sense. Um, you know, and then there could be cultural senses. So just trying, uh, you, know, you know, saying well, once you make a statement, someone asks for clarification to say in more like more you know, like like in uh, in in verifiable terms, what does it really mean, right? And then. So this is an oath that I have taken. Uh, you know, in practice, it's easier than it sounds because very few people like to bet. Even when you stick your neck out and say, I'll bet on anything that I've said, I, I would say that I initiate 90% of all the bets that I make. I do make a lot of bets. But the fact that I stick... you got a good yeah, track record. Right? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I've got... So right now, for out, for out of all the bets that have matured, I'm at 14 out of 14. So I'm, I'm happy nice. about that. I... 
you know, if Brexit occurs before January 1st, 2020, then I'm going to lose one of those bets. Uh, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's always a lazy excuse. Of, well, I basically won because I was only off by nine months and for a 10-year bet. But no, I lost the bet. I, I will lose the bet if, uh, you know, if I don't make the deadline. Uh, you know, so, you know, one, one, one part of the better's oath is when you lose a bet to just graciously concede and not immediately explain how you're really right all along. Particularly, like, if you have reservations about the bet, to state them up front mm -hmm. rather than wait to lose and then say, ah, well, this doesn't really mean anything. Uh, so, you know, like, my favorite political psycho psychologist of all time, Philip Tetlock, he had this big mm -hmm. study of, uh, you know, a book called, you know, Expert Political Judgment, How Good Is It, How Can We Know?, where he went and asked a bunch of experts in different areas for their predictions. He asked them in the 80s, and then 10 to 20 years later, he was able to go and see how accurate they were. And one thing he noticed is that people who lose, uh, who predictions are wrong, t very frequently will say things like, well, I, I won in spirit, I, I basically I basically was right. But he said, but never, never. I think I think he literally did say never in this entire survey. Did someone, was someone right? And they say, I didn't really deserve to win. And it, it doesn't really prove anything. <laughs> I, I was right for the, I, I was right for the wrong reason. So don't give me credit. Right? And this, you know, this is the kind <laughs> of corruption of, 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 you know, of human reason that Tetlock has you know, done so much to alert us to. And again, so what I say is like, you know, like if you've got a reservation, say it up front. Don't say it afterwards because that's really cheesy. Uh, and then, and then be all, you know, another part of the better's oath is never to mock the loser because I say, you know, the loser is way better than all the people who just shoot their mouths off without betting. <laughs> you know, the loser at least is in the realm of truth. They're playing the right game. They understand the responsibilities. Again, like you know, to me, the people that you know, deserve to be mocked are like, like your pundits with their endless vague statements. Things about it's not necessarily the case that the Arab Spring will lead to a worse situation in the Middle East in the in the in the long run. So, all right, I <laughs> guess that's true, but it's like not the kind of thing anyone any it's no it's not a sentence anyone should write or anyone should read. It's just a it's like it's just like a sentence that's well, you know the, the it's just not not worth the time of anyone. It's you know such a you know so so trivially true. What do you have to say to um, to people to fear that comes up when I've had some experience like talking to people about prediction markets mm -hmm. and you know resistance to prediction markets and they bring up a lot of objections mm -hmm. like well, that'll like introduce these new biases or people just be trying to win the bet instead mm -hmm. of like trying to be right, instead of trying to do what's true. And I, I well, much of it is like easily dismissible mm -hmm. as like, you don't want to stick your neck out. I, I wonder if you think there's any good criticism of the betting and prediction market setup. Well, there's a lot of criticisms that are, that, that uh, in, are internally consistent and potentially a concern. I don't think the empirics really hold up. So, you know, the concern that if you let people bet on bad things, they may deliberately do bad things. Totally, totally sensible. Uh, it is it is a very weak, weak criticism of existing prediction markets, which normally have verification that you didn't actually commit the crime or like like cause the bad <laughs> thing. Uh, so, you know, so you might remember that Robin was involved in the so-called terrorism betting market scandal, uh, or maybe you don't remember. Actually, this is probably I don't before know your about time. Those, no. So I think this is around I want to say like two thousand six or so. So there you know so there's a whole there are a whole a number of people involved in prediction markets. And then there's a senator and a congressman, I'm going to get their names wrong, so I won't bother saying who they are, but you can Google it, who went and publicly denounced this and said this is creating incentive for terrorism. And they never bothered to look at two things. First of all, the program is being administered by the Defense Department. 
So if, if, you, if someone calls a terrorist attack with great accuracy, they're going to get investigated. And if it turns out they did it, they're not getting the money. Secondly, the, uh, the, betting, the betting amount was capped at 100 bucks. So you'd have to seriously imagine a t- someone saying, well, I wasn't going to commit this act of suicidal terrorism, but if there's 100 bucks in it for me, then I'll do it. And then actually after 9-11, there was the 9-11 uh, reports, uh, official report of the government, where they investigated whether anyone manipulated financial markets to profit from the 9-11 attacks. And the answer was no. Right, so they found no sign of that. I think they found one company that had shorted, I think, United, but they had also bought American. So either they only knew about half the plot or it just was a random event in a big world. So I you know, so that seemed to just be relevant. And, of course, and the thing is that if you were going to go and try to make money by causing disasters, the sensible place to put your, put your money is not in the hands of a special prediction market where all eyes are on you, but rather just in the global financial markets. That would be a much better way to try to make money off of something because people, you you won't be there with your hand in the till when the alarm goes off. <laughs> so, and even that doesn't seem to happen. Uh, so, I mean, to my mind, you know, that, that that's an argument that's totally sensible. And, you know, like, you know, if, say, I were writing a corporate charter, uh, if there were some way that corporate officers could make money by making the company crash, then I'd be concerned about that. But the actual prediction markets that we have really have nothing to do with that. So I wouldn't be worried about that. You know, there's some other subtler ones, but I mean, what about the style of thinking that it encourages? Uh-huh. I sometimes, I've actually, I am very for this kind of thinking, but I've seen mm-hmm. for um, like social groups that do prediction markets uh-huh. that they get really guarded, and it feels like hmm. I don't know that they stop really. I don't know. These are a lot mm-hmm. of people who are like very into being right, which mm-hmm. I don't think huh. is necessarily the correct motivation, but um, and. I do. I've. I mean, quite. Despite myself, I thought like, well, God, like maybe they really do. Maybe it really does shut down some kind of creative thinking if you're afraid to be wrong on the record. So at least on the surface, you would think that if you really want to be right and have a reputation for that, you'd be very unguarded. You would be shooting your mouth off all the time, saying your predictions. Um, okay, so we've talked about we've we've just organically hit upon a lot of big ideas. But you say you're a big idea person, and mm-hmm. we've already talked about a few. But I just kind of want to hit and give you a chance to talk about. A couple more. So open borders. Mm-hmm. Can we hear sure, sure. your argument for open borders? Uh, sure. Something that a lot of effective altruists are very yes. interested in uh, for increasing human welfare. So sure, sure. Yeah. So love to hear it. you know the the heart of the idea of open borders, uh, at least as I like to describe it, is say you know anyone who doesn't belong in jail should be free to live and work in any country they want. Right. So of course you know if someone loves, but not be a yes. citizen of any country. Right. You know that. So that's you know that's okay. that's in no way required. Again, like ends. Um, so, you know, like, you know, we could talk about that. But again, like the, the heart of the proposal is that. And to me, everything else is just details. Um, you know, so like, like you know, un- unimportant details specifically. Uh, so, you know, like, you know, so in terms of what is the argument for it? Uh, so to me, this is, the, you know, this is the kind of thing where there just, you know, there ought to be, pres- we should have a presumption in favor of it. It's because, look, if you don't have any reason to stop someone from moving to another country to get, to have a better life and a better job, you shouldn't do it. Uh, so this, this is where I am... You know, yeah, yeah. So yeah, my, at least my, my impression of most effective altruists are explicitly consequentialist utilitarians. So I'm actually not, but I do have the view. Like a plurality. Yes, yeah. yeah, but I, anyway, I do have the view of before before you start passing laws to uh, that, that have very bad effects on people, you should at least go and have some very strong argument in, uh, in his favor, right? So you know, so my view is you know, there's just a lot there's a lot of policies where. The, you know, like that it just involved you know, leaving a person alone who just wants to have a job or, or live somewhere where there's no actually like you know like the burden of proof really should be on someone who wants wants to stop it rather than someone that wants to allow it 
Uh, so, you know, like, I often think about this thought experiment where imagine you're in Haiti doing relief work and then the U.S. government says, sorry, you're not cleared to travel to the United States. And you sit around saying, well, but why not? And then they say, well, the United States doesn't have to give you a reason, which is true legally, by the way. It's the doctrine of conciliar absolutism. They don't have to explain themselves to anybody. Uh, and then finally you say, but... You know, but you know, but I but I live, but I already have a house there. I live there. And say, wait a second, are you a, you a citizen? Yeah, yeah. I, I sorry, I didn't mention that. And say, oh well, in that case, you're free to come. And sorry, in that case, well, now that I'm free to come, can you tell me why you didn't want me to come? Say, no reason. We just didn't feel like it. That seems like a terrible thing to do to someone for no good reason, just to trap someone in Haiti. Now, given given that's where I start, then to me the interesting question is the the social scientific search for any good argument against letting people do this. Um, and then you know there you know I, I would say there's four big uh, four big arguments uh, you know big umbrella arguments uh, which uh, you know, I can go over in as much or as little detail as you want, but you know like I think the, you know, the first big one people just think of is that open borders would cause horrible poverty, like we you know, said so like I had a debate partner actually Vivek Wadwa who didn't really actually agree with it didn't really agree with it as I as found out, but anyway you know he you know, he said something which I think is a very common view he said look. I believe in exporting riches, not importing poverty. So if we go and let in a bunch of people from more countries, that will just import poverty and be terrible. And this is where I say, well, we have to go and look at the actual economics of labor mobility. And you know, so you know, there's economist Michael Clemens, who's probably done more on this than anybody else. But uh, the basic result out of economists have estimated what is the effect of something like open borders on global wealth, global production. And while, of course, uh, it's a big change, so there's a wide range of estimates, still a very typical estimate is something like a doubling of global output. And like, why would there be global output? Why would global output double just because you move people from one country to another? The answer is productivity is much higher in some countries than other countries. And when you go and move someone, who, like, an, like even like a high, an illiterate person from a, a, a impoverished country to the U.S., uh, it's very standard that their income rises by a factor of 10. It's like, why would it be rise by a factor of 10 I'll, you know, so if you're an economist, you might just say that U.S. employers are nice and Haitian employers are mean. But the obvious story is American employers are competing with each other, just like Haitian employers are competing with other Haitian employers. But if your productivity is higher, they'll pay you more money because they have to compete with other people that are bidding for your services. Uh, so the, like, the main effect of you know, economically of open borders, uh, according to almost every estimate, is just to move labor from where it produces very little to places where it produces a lot which increases the wealth of the world. Now notice this is not the trivial argument that if we move people from Haiti to the US, the, the GDP of the US will rise because we have more people. That's obvious. But the, rather, the, it's the interesting claim that if you look at the combined GDP of the US and Haiti before, when, they, when there's without open borders and after, or with open borders, the combined GDP is way higher because you are moving labor from unproductive areas to productive areas. Uh, then, of course, there's always the question of, well, right, fine, suppose GDP doubles, but what about the distribution? I mean, there I would just say, look, you know, like throughout all of his, so while we can imagine the, the, like, theoretically that you could double production and yet some groups will lose, but it's very hard to find any historical example that seems to fit that trend. In general, when production massively rises, living standards rise in a very broad-based way. So if you just look at where are the best countries on earth to be poor? They're rich countries, not poor countries. You don't want to be poor in Haiti. You want to be poor in the U.S. You want to be in the bottom 10% or 5% or 1% of the U.S. Way better than being in even the 50th percentile of Haiti. So now the, you know, the next step for me is say, look, if, any, if, the, if this estimate of how much open borders would enrich the world is even remotely true, 
We're talking many trillions of dollars per year. So whatever other complaints you have would have to be enormous in order to outweigh this gain, this gain in wealth. We'd have to be talking about some massive, horrible other harms. Uh, so this means that like any quantitatively small harm, we can you know, like, like we can say, look, even if you're right, still it's nothing compared to the trillions of dollars of extra wealth that the world will have per year. You know, even if there's more crime or there's more terrorist attacks or whatever, like none of that is going to be remotely worth tens of trillions of dollars every year. So, so does the tens of trillions of dollars prediction take into account at all, like? cultural misunderstandings or like time to adjust and actually work together efficiently? Yeah, yeah, great question. So in terms of like, how can you even get the numbers this large? This is a long run estimate of what happens after we've had, after we've had like everyone who wants to move has moved, right? So it's like a long run equilibrium thing. And, and if you go and check the math, this does mean billions of people will be moving, right? So, So billions of people must move for this to occur. Um, now, you know, when, you know, people freak out at that. They say, look, look at the percentage increase in the population of the U.S. over the last 200 years. You know, so like it's it's a way larger percentage change than, than, than like, I, think, yeah, I think it actually, yeah. So, yes, the, the population of the U.S. has risen by more than a factor of 10 over the last 200 years. So, as to, you know, so even if it were another billion people moved to the U.S. over the next century, like why is that so hard to handle, especially if you have ever driven across this country and seen it's just a giant ghost town of a country. There's hardly any people anywhere. It's just, it's really, really very empty. On terms of, you know, cultural effects and things like that, yes, it is, it is on the one, you know, it is assuming that it doesn't cause civil war, anything like that. Uh, in turn, you know, and, and, it is, and it is assuming that there isn't some enormous nonlinear damage, right? So, of course, all estimates of what would occur based upon what we see. Right, so changes that we see now, we have seen some quite large changes in populations of countries over fairly short amounts of time. So, for example, Israel Israel's population rose by about twenty percent from immigration over, I think, about a, about a five year span in the nineteen nineties, and the, the the harm there, so like it's very hard to see what the what, what the damage is even supposed to have been. Uh, there, you know, again, there, there's some very short-term rise in unemployment, which seemed to go very way very quickly. Very little chance to see even any like, like any reduction of, of wages of people competing in areas. In terms of the cultural harm, on the one hand, you might say, well, they're all Jews, so it's all one culture. But if you know Jews, you might say, no, it's not one culture of Jews. There's a bunch of different kinds. These are these are Soviet Jews. These are people who lived under communism, and their parents lived under communism. So that seems very different than some than people that are totally the Jews that are fully Westernized. Or of course, you got your Yemeni Jews who are like in many ways are like close to fully Arabized, but before they're expelled. So again, while these cultural factors are an issue, you know, I see it as mostly just a transition issue. Again, I'd also say like the more measurable the issue, the cultural issue is, the less of a concern it seems to be. Uh, you know, there is this idea that in 1900 immigrants learned English and now they don't. Uh, again, if you look at the data, that's wrong. First-generation immigrants never really got fluent in English, especially if they're adult first-world first, first, world, first world immigrants. It's just really hard to do to be to learn a language to fluency when you're an adult. But the kids of, of immigrants acquired fluency in 1900, and they still do today. So we have good data on this. Basically, as long as you come before you're 10 years old, then you are extremely, like, overwhelmingly likely to speak, speak English uh, like, you know, at a native level when you're an adult. Uh, you know, like there's the idea of like Spanish speaking immigrants don't learn English. I mean, the real story is that in the past, there'd be a wave of immigration from Germany and then immigrants would start would stop coming from Germany. And so eventually be at a point where everyone of German ancestry speaks English. With Spanish speaking immigrants, there's continuing waves. 
So you need to disaggregate it by generation and to see, ah, it's not that Spanish speakers don't learn English. It's that we keep getting new waves of uh, new waves of first generation Spanish speakers. Interesting. I thought you would say that it's just that there are so many that you can actually navigate pretty well in a lot of. Uh, so like, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a that's a that's a common that's a common view. But uh, so like in looking at the data, the main difference between uh, you know descendants of Spanish speaking immigrants and other immigrants is that Spanish speakers retain Spanish for an extra generation. So it's not that they don't learn English; it's that they keep Spanish. Which, to me, given given all the effort made to torture people in learning foreign languages, the fact that there's some people who actually are fluently learning another language in the home in addition to English, so why anyone would consider this a bad thing, I can't even fathom it. But um, you know, like you know, people, like you know, like uh, again, especially with immigration, people are so eager to find any negative and to complain about whatever negative they can find instead of stepping back and looking at the big picture. Uh, in terms of you know, like the best anti-immigration arguments. Um, you know, so uh, this is the idea that like the immigrants are just not socialized in our political culture and they're going to vote for terrible policies and ruin our country. Uh, so again, I, like theoretically possible. Again, this is one though where I think you need to go and look uh, go and look at the data. So what, what I so you know, I have looked at the data, um, and what I say is you know, th- you know there is decent evidence that uh, that that for, you know that for the foreign born in the U.S., especially uh, the low edu- the less educated foreign born are more socially conservative and more economically liberal than natives. Uh, but I say, you know, two things. First of all, it, it's only a marginal difference. It's not like the typical American is a radical libertarian and the typical immigration is a Stalinist or any, anything remotely like that. And then secondly, the other, the other key fact is that the foreign-born and especially low-education foreign-born barely vote at all. So, uh, you know, hmm. They just don't participate. They're like you know they're you know, they may have these views, but they are politically pretty uh, pretty much neutered. And then the real question is what you know what what happens to their kids? And in, ter- in terms of their kids, you know, like again, like the the data the data that I've seen, I'm still going through it right now. Actually, is that you know again, there's a high level of assimilation. So again, doesn't seem like it's a very serious worry to me. Um, so I'm actually so actually by the way, you know like the. the Right now, I've started the chapter in my nonfiction graphic novel on the social science and philosophy of immigration. And right now, I am doing the chapter on the political effects of open borders. So this is where, uh, <laughs> so you know, you know, although it's a graphic novel, like I'm still doing like my my normal level of of research before I write. So like again, I'm very concerned of writing in ignorance of any research that's relevant to a topic. So just going through the the the, the evidence that I can and just seeing what I find. Uh, but actually, actually, just just to plug the project that I'm working on. So, do you happen to know uh, the webcomic Saturday Morning Breakfast serial? Mm-hmm. Yes. So the guy who does that is Zach Wienersmith, and he is my artist. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, so we're collaborating together on the project. Uh, I guess we're like over. Like, so he's so it's going to be about 200 pages. He's like on page 57 or so right now. So, but anyway, this is, you know, totally exciting. Yeah, wow. So to me, you know, really exciting. Well, really, I know that our listeners will. Yeah, yeah really, so, so really, yeah. really exciting project to me. It's so much fun. I've been a big fan of graphic novels for a long time and to actually get to work with someone of, of, of his caliber. You know, I'm writing, I'm writing the script, but I'm also doing the pre-visualization. So I will send him, you know, I, you know like you know, page mock-ups, uh, you know, using like Google mm-hmm. images to get an idea about what, you know, what, what, what I have in my mind. And then he draws that with some guidance from me about, uh, you know, how I want it to look and, we go back and forth, so it's uh, so you know it is, it's going to basically take this research on the borders and just put it between two very uh, two covers that will be uh, like content to be uh, being unusually entertaining and unusually readable. 
So, so it was that just your motive to just make it more fun? Yeah. yeah. Well, so you know, like you know, it's a top, you know, it's a topic I really care a lot about. Um, it also so like a lot of my arguments or thought experiments, which I think work better visually than in writing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I have this thought experiment. Of, in terms of graphs? Yeah, yeah, so, you know, well, for example, I have this thought experiment. So they say, you know, like imagine you've got a million farmers in Antarctica. They're farming the snow, eking out this bare minimal existence. And then imagine that finally some other country uh, with uh, conditions more hospitable to agriculture lets, lets the Antarcticans move. So, like, well, look, obviously the Antarcticans are better off. But is there anyone else who's better off if the Antarcticans can move from farming Antarctica to farming Argentina, say? Right. And well, what, what happens when they move? Their productivity goes way up. And what are the what are those Antarctican farmers do with that? Ex, with all that extra food they're growing, they sell it. So who benefits from this? Not just the Antarcticans. Everyone who eats benefits from this. Uh, so that so I mean, this is something where I mean, I like the argument, but to actually be able to have Zach Wienersmith draw that scenario that I just described, I think I think I think the thought experiment works works better visually than it does uh, you know purely orally. So, I mean, I'm, I'm doing, so, like, it has a lot of stuff like that. Um, I mean, in general, I like graphic novels because I feel like, you know, like it's just a very uh, condensed way of giving people a lot of information quickly. I mean, I like it a lot for stories because when I'm reading a novel, I just feel like I don't need to read all this description of what the room looks like. I mean, I, I want the story. I want the dialogue. Uh, and, you know, and then when I read a graphic novel, they just draw what the room looks like. And that, to me, like, is just a much more a much more engaging way to find out what a room looks like than reading someone saying, you know, like it had thirdly wallpaper and a shade of, of you know, chartreuse or whatever. Uh, so similarly in this graphic novel, I'm just trying to take advantage of all the pedagogical advantages of the format to really make something special. I mean, and, you know, part, of, part of it is, you know, I've just been a, a huge fan of this. So to be able to go and do and be, be part of this industry that I'm such a fan of, you know, that's, that's a great thrill for me. Well, I'm really heartened to hear that you're so into alternative publishing. Yeah. I just, uh, to get back to my hobby horse, I can't, I, with, I feel like so many, so many fields have not caught up to the idea of the, the power that we have now with images and stuff. Mm-hmm. And to, if you actually want to communicate details, like why would you force people to put it through this bizarre medium of text? Mm-hmm. Like there's a reason sure, sure. that we did that in the past, but Oh yeah, and I guess you know it's a useful skill. But my word, I just always mm-hmm. marvel at it. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so you you know, there's the world is full of status games, and the key question is which of them do you which of them do you really have to play to do what you want, and which of them can you can you get around, and which of them can you do you have to play for a while, and then you get to a position where you can say, I don't like your game, I'm not going to play your game anymore. Uh, for professors, of course, have this thing called tenure where we can do it. <laughs> Very few do actually take advantage of it, so I don't know whether it's selection or treatment, but uh, yeah, I'm someone who tries to suck all the value out of tenure that I can. Are there any other games that you played for a while or would recommend that other people consider playing and then give hmm. up? Let's see. Um, hmm. So, well, so, you know, I got married at 23, so... <laughs> so I also got oh, married Oh, young. congratulations. <laughs> I was 21. All right, so. wow. All right, let's... It's a, yeah, for uh, my generation, uh, very, I know. very unusual. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, so like, you know, like the advice that I that I always give to uh, to lonely hearts is that, um, you know, I mean, actually, like like people people who are like who are lonely or unemployed actually say, look, here's the good news: you only need to find one person who loves you. You only need to find one employer who loves you, and you solve your problem. So, like, like you know, like you just need to find you, know, you just need to search hard enough to find to find someone where to find that good match. 
And then, you know, of course, when you're looking for, the, for looking for the match, you may feel like, well, I don't want to be ruled out based upon a bunch of superficial things, so I'm just going to have to conform during the search period. But if you want to find your good match, then you can say, all right, well, actually, I never really liked wearing suits. Sorry. I mean, like, you don't, you can still love me if I don't wear a suit, do you? Uh, yeah, why not? All right. Uh, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. That's, this yeah. is so funny, because my husband says, like, exactly the ah. same thing. And it could very easily be taken as an insult. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, so you look, I'm not insulting you. I'm insulting mankind. <laughs> I'm saying people are I'm not saying you're superficial I'm saying people are superficial and I didn't I didn't want to get ruled out before I was considered before I was considered but now that I know you I realize how great you are so so I think that that's that's the pitch that I would make you know you're special you're you're you're, yeah. you're you are better than other people uh so this is a good uh intro into I'm very intrigued by this book and I I bought it uh yesterday on Amazon but selfish reasons uh-huh. to have kids so I haven't yes. read it but I thought it was interesting. Can you give a quick pitch? Sure. And also the context for EA is there's a lot of like really agonizing mm-hmm. like thinking going on in EA with people who want kids or who don't want mm-hmm. kids and like is it okay and right, is right. it our duty to have kids? You know, sure, sure. <laughs> what what should we do? Yeah. So the actual title is Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. So more kids. so again, like you know, the, the, you know, the goal of the book is not to persuade people who just have no interest in kids to have kids, but rather if you have some germ of interest. If it's the kind of thing that you would that you would think about to say have more uh, you know to you know to have more than you otherwise were, were planning on, uh, I mean really really the heart of the book is a topic that's probably well known to a lot of EA people, which is behavioral genetics. You know, it's the question like why do people turn out the way that they turn out? So of course there's the like, you know, many millennia old. Is it nature? Is it nurture? For most of the time, the argument is just stuck in a ditch. No one had any, any real evidence, but. Then along comes, like especially starting in the 1960s and building over the last 50 years, uh, there are two kinds of studies where they actually or actually were able to make a lot of progress. So there's the adoption study, where you look at people who are adopted by one family that they're not biologically related to, and you can use this to say, all right, well, how similar are you to the family that adopted you? How similar are you to your biological relatives? If you can track them down and find out what the data say. And then secondly, there's also a big body of research on twins which takes advantage of the fact that some twins are identical, so they share all their genes, some are fraternal, where they only share the normal amount of genes of any two siblings. And from this, you can get a measure how, if you have an extra 50 percentage points of genetic similarity, then how much more alike does that make you? And then with some math and some simplifying assumptions, you can, uh, you can also back out how much room is left for nurture to matter. So, I mean, like, I can't go and do the math right here, but essentially, once you know, right, so, like, here's how much we can explain by heredity, and then there's something else you can do. You say, well, like, so what, like, how, like, how different are they from totally similar? Right? Because on most interesting traits, even identical twins raised together are not totally similar. That gives us an estimate of what's called non-shared environment. It's the, it's everything. It's, you think of it, it's just residual. It's everything that's not due to nature or nurture. And then we've got those two pieces. And then we can just take, uh, get the last piece is just going to be how much is left for upbringing to matter. And not just upbringing in the narrow sense of we measure your parenting style, whether you spank your kids or whatever, or whether you let them play video games, but like any possible parenting thing going on. Because like when you think about an adoption study, you don't really know. So you just see, well, suppose kids are adopted by tall families. Suppose they average six inches taller than those that are adopted by short families. That wouldn't really tell you why. It could be the water, could be the food, could be the exercise. There's so many possible reasons why that might happen. But uh, it is a, it's, what you're measuring is all nurture 
put together, like direct, indirect, anything that could happen. It could be that your rich family, other people are nicer to you. This stimulates your your endorphins, and then that leads to a taller a taller height. There's so many different ways this could happen, mm-hmm. and that all gets filed in the in these methods under nurture. Just like with nature, suppose that good looks are hereditary, and if you and, and then people who look good are people treat them nicer, and this makes them happier. Right, mm-hmm. that would get counted as a nature effect by these methods, and I would say totally reasonably so, because this means that you could have been raised by a totally different family, and you have these you, these good-looking genes, and therefore people are nice to you, and nice being being treated well makes you happy. So in that way, you could say happiness is hereditary because looks hereditary, and there's a bunch of there's a whole chain of effects, and what these methods really capture is all the chains, all of them together. Now this isn't very helpful for figuring out exactly how to raise your kids. But a big result that comes out of all this research is that nurture effects are much smaller than almost any normal person thinks, mm-hmm. right? So not just for physical traits like height or weight, but for psychological traits, for intellectual traits, for interests, for religiosity. So many different traits turn out to be not only, you know, so not all genetic. That's wrong. There's, most of these traits are only moderately genetic, but the residual turns out to be not explained by, by to very much, very much, or sometimes at all by the family you're raised by. Uh, so you know, like you know, like you see so two identical twins; they're not identical. Does the do the differences have to be have to be due to upbringing? Well, they're raised in the same family, so it's not the fact that they're raised in the same family; it's something else, something mysterious. Mm-hmm. But if you go and look at say identical twins raised together versus identical twins raised you know, identical twins raised apart, and see that that they are equally similar. Then that's really saying that the whether being raised in one home versus the other did not change you on average at all, actually. And we can see this for some for a few traits like intelligence. It's very hard to see any effect of upbringing on adult intelligence. All right, now what does all this have to do with whether to have kids or how many kids to have? Well, I look at this as an economist, and I say, well, right now there is a very popular standard parenting style that I see among, I mean. Not just upper middle class parents, really almost all parents, you know, like almost any parent that isn't just a terrible, neglectful parent. And it's this idea that, look, kids require enormous parental investment to have a decent future. If parents don't put a lot of time and energy doing a bunch of things that aren't that fun, actually, your kids are going to grow up to be, to have, have a bunch of problems. The only way to go and make your kids grow up well is by just you know, like a lot of sacrifice, spending tons of time, doing things that aren't very fun pressuring them to do well in school, enrolling them in a bunch of activities that maybe neither of you even likes, right? And what, what, what the, I see what the, what the science of nature and nurture says is that actually there's really, there's very little effect of how you raise your kids, at least within the range of people that could be in a study at all. So there's no wolf children in these studies or anything like that. These are people that are functional enough to be part of a scientific study, but that's a pretty low bar. You know, um, so functional enough that they're allowed, that they can legally adopt a child, for example, that's that is a cutoff, but within this range, very little sign that uh, that how you raise your kids re- re- like has a lot has, you know, has an effect on how they turn out as adults. Now, some people think that's depressing, like it means I don't matter. But I say no, no, it's actually very good. It means that you can stop doing anything unpleasant that you don't want to do. At least, you know, at least a lot of the unpleasant stuff that you're currently doing for like so like normally, of course, we do unpleasant things for long run gain. If it turns out there is no long run gain, then and you don't like it now, then just stop doing it. Right now, this is uh, just common sense. Uh, you, you don't need economists to say if you're doing something you don't like and it doesn't pay, stop. Well, but where the where the economics comes in is say, well, look, if well, after you go and adjust your parenting style to get rid of this unpleasantness, then you should reconsider the number of kids that you have. 
because the cost of having a kid is low, of having a kid, not just any, any old kid, but a kid that is at your standards. The cost of having a kid that's going to turn out on average to be the kind of adult that you want, that you would like to be the parent of is just a lot lower than you thought. So you know, when I was writing the book, there was an op-ed that came out on the theme of soccer as contraception. And it was a mom saying, <laughs> look, we, uh, we've got two kids. We really like them. And you know, we, uh, ben, we're thinking of having a third kid. But the problem is the first two kids are involved in soccer. And it's so exhausting. It consumes so much, so much of our time. And if we realized we had a third kid, we would have to enroll a third kid in soccer. And then I think she said, we briefly thought about maybe have a third kid, but don't do soccer. No, no, no that's crazy. That's, you're just going to get a loser kid if you do that. And then for her, to, then, then like, like, so what are we going to do? And like, they, she was really factoring in all this pain and suffering of having the third child into decision, which I say is totally reasonable. If it's true that you need to do, you know, if the causal theory is true, if it's really true that you need to do all the suffering in order to have a decent kid. But I say, actually, the science says that there's a broad range of different parenting styles that are all about equally good. So if there's something you don't like, just like, uh, uh, then that's that, if that's the marginal thing keeping you from having another kid, just, don't do the thing you don't like and do have the kid. So that's, uh, you know, so you know, that, that, that is the chain of reasoning that, 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 that's here. And like, if that seems like, again, like overly, ra- overly rationalist, again, like, I, I, I suspect the EA community will not find it that way. It's not yes, yes. sound that way right. to the EA and, and, and then in terms yeah. of like the guilt of having kids or not, I mean, so like the main point, so it's called selfish reasons to have more kids, just focusing on people who don't want to have kids because they think it's too much work or too much of a pain in the neck or it's just too much of a sacrifice to their lifestyle or people who at least only want to have like one kid because I don't know, two kids would be, would, would, would kill me. That's so hard. Uh, so I mean, the, so the focus is on, on that, uh, just because you know, I, I, so I, that's, those are actually the main arguments that I hear from people about kids. It's just like, oh, it's so hard. I do have one chapter on... What if you are an altruist and you're and you're and you're interested in another kid, but you think you're harming the planet? And again, that's one where I just le- I just lead with the existence value of life. So like, like, how much would someone pay to exist? Right. So most people seem to yes so yes. So uh, the yes. EA spin on that yes. would be like, how many people can you pay to exist in other countries? Right, right. You know, with the same right, right, sure, money. sure. Of course, yeah. So yes. So if you yes, it's true. That, yeah, you could certainly save a lot more lives uh, by going and donating that money to someone else. But if that's not what you're going to do with the money, so which of course is true for almost everybody. Yeah. So on you know, So I would say out of all the people who do not have kids, the like the amount, the extra amount of charitable giving to save lives in poor countries is I think near zero. So like the real different, the real the real the real choice for most people is either have more personal consumption or have more kids. And for and so for that I uh, so that I uh, that I say that you like you are doing uh, not only a good thing honestly I think for most people having kids is the best thing they ever do right so like a, have you another person gets to live that's okay. worth it that's worth millions of dollars to them uh, I mean I do so I mean I do so this is now an area where Robin and I Robin and I actually agree on this question of that it's really great to be alive I do have some other colleagues who have some metaphysical <laughs> problem with this. And, and to them, I always just say, but cinematic proof. Think of all the movies where the bad guy says, I will make you wish you had never been born. <laughs> right? And I say, and why is that a scary threat? Because it's bad to not be born. It's awesome to be awesome to be mm-hmm. alive. And when economists say, yeah, but if you're never alive, you never know what you're missing. So yes, but opportunity cost. Like what you could have had would be would have been great. So that to me is enough to say, you know, that at least is one big thing to put on the ledger. Which again is not, you know, if I were utilitarian, then 
Uh, again, like, like, you know, like probably like, you know, the best thing would just be to go and take the money and go and use it to, to save lives using, using effective charities. Although if that's off the table for a reason, then for utilitarian grounds, I say, yeah, like, like you'll like probably go up to your biological maximum of kids. I'm not a utilitarian. And so I don't see any, I, 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 I don't do that myself. Uh, I don't advise other people to do it. Uh, but yeah, like if you were, if you were a utilitarian or most kinds of consequentialists, then yeah, stay, you know, like first choice would be to, would be the effective charity, but yeah, like but like in terms of what most people what pe- what most people would spend the money on otherwise, uh, yeah, like it's like you know not, another child, uh, you know seems you know, like, like I, I mean in terms of the math, it's hard for me to see how it could not be that. Right now, you know, of course, if you think that you know, human beings do so much damage to the planet that the millions of dollars of value one person gets is more uh, is exceeded by the millions of dollars of harm that they're inflicting. That could change that. Um, yeah, so in the in the book, I uh, I do go over you know most of the uh, you know, at least what I see is the relevant evidence on how much is the env- environmental harm are people doing, and in particular, like is it re- like 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 if if you were concerned about the harm that populations are doing, would it make sense to either reduce population or do something much milder, like just raise the tax on pollution, something like that? Which yeah, I mean, as like almost all economists, I just say yeah, the second thing clearly. Like if you have something with lots of great benefits and one side and one bad side effect, don't go and get rid of the whole thing. Go and try to target the actual problem, the actual specific problem. So, what about uh, less tangible opportunity costs, like just the amount of mental energy that's dedicated to your kids, mm-hmm. even if you're mm-hmm. not doing it in a very intensive parenting mm-hmm. style? Because um, mm-hmm. that's a concern for mm-hmm. like you know when we're trying to think about all of our resources like mm-hmm. our the time in our careers our level of mm-hmm. expertise like you know things that you don't know you're giving up so uh, mm-hmm. what would you say to that right uh, so just the, you know, there's, there's two ways of coming at it so you know, like you probably know there is this research claiming that parents are less happy than non-parents um, mm-hmm. so you know I, I actually spent quite a bit of time going over the data the real the real story I'd say is this so married people are vastly happier than single people a claim that seems you know, very, very well borne out. I actually got an angry phone call from a single woman because I said, I am single and I'm super happy. You're like, okay. Uh, I didn't say that was impossible or anything, but, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, anyway, but on the, and on the other hand, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the harm that children inflict on, on, on happiness, though you can detect it in the data, it's very small. It's the kind of thing like with a lot of empirical research where you get a qualitative result that sounds shocking. And then you can get news coverage that mentions the result without the size of the effect. And the size of the effect is very small. And again, of course, that's a lot of the motivation for my book is to say, look, people are parenting in an unhappy way, but the unhappiness de- detriment is sufficiently modest that it's very plausible that we can actually t- that we can actually change the sign by changing the parenting style. Whereas if there were a huge effect, then I would say it's not really very credible that you just parent in a different way and then it, then it reverses everything. Mm-hmm. But if it's a marginal effect, which is what we really see in the data, then totally different story. Uh, so I would say, you know, in, term- in terms of the data, the like, like the, you know, the the difference in happiness between parents and non-parents is very is very slight, and especially if you take into account that kids you know, seem to have a a big benefit for marital stability. So childless couples have higher divorce rates for pretty obvious reasons, and you again you might think this just traps people in unhappy marriages, uh, but again in the data it doesn't seem like that's really going on. Uh, I I do remember this paper I can't remember the source, but. The theme was, if you're unhappily married and you just wait a few years, you'll stop being unhappy again. <laughs> right? Which... As with most yes. things, it seems. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. like, you know, like, any, especially sort of the, you know, like, the, like, so, ineffective altruism, I, I assume that you put a fair amount of effort into studying happiness research. 
just the like the the general result, which was known to you know, many of the ancient Greeks and Romans, Epicurus, that so much of our happiness is about our attitude towards things rather than the things themselves. So much of being happy is like mm. if you think that you should have something but you don't have it, that makes you unhappy. Whereas if you think that you that you are that what you have is appropriate, even if it's not very much, then actually people can be very content with that most of the time. Now there are some things that are more absolute, like being in constant pain, but again, like you know, so so much of of you know happy of your overall happiness is just about is this you know, like do I have what I ought, like like is my life the way that it, that it's supposed to be, right mm. and. Now there is some question like how flexible is your view of what things are supposed to be? Um, this is one where I it's I I haven't seen any really good evidence either way, but I will say like look there's some flexibility here, and most people that I know refuse to refuse to even try to be flexible in their view about how things ought to be. There's so much stubborn stubbornness and pride in people's views about the way things ought to be. And yes, yeah. and you know, you know, so like Rob, Robin and I, this is another Robin and I have a strong agreement. I'd say where when we we talk, we talk to people and we say, look, you know, the easiest way to get happy is just to accept that what you have is good. I guess I should talk about the okay. I'll ask the status of your book, Poverty: Who's to ah. Blame? Do you have? So this is one that's on a topic that I think will really interest a lot of people in EEA, although it will greatly antagonize the dogmatic consequentialist because even the title. Is already talking about something that consequentialists don't really, uh, you know, you know, in my experience, don't like talking about. Yeah, it's a funny question to yes. me. <laughs> so, um, you know, so like, well, who cares who's to blame? Like, let's just fit, you know, so there's an, there's an old Japanese saying of fix the problem, not the blame. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is this is where there are many episodes of The Simpsons that seem relevant, like uh, Homer saying, "Look, we could talk we could talk all day about who crashed whose car to whose house. Let's just get on get <laughs> get on with this problem and deal with it." Right. Look, there's a reason why people want to talk about blame because you know, it's intrinsically interesting. But also, the que- like, like, like the question of well, who should be fixing this problem has a lot to do with who caused the problem in common sense morality, anyway. So, like, you know, if if the person who got drunk and drove the car to someone else's house, if they say, "Why don't you just work with me to fix this problem?" Like, well, you crashed your car into my house. How about you fix the problem? Like this is your responsibility. It's not my not my problem. You should do it. If I help you, it's charity, and you should be even more grateful to me than you already are. Anyways, the yes. consequentialist yes. take on it, I would think, and I, right. I thought you sure. were going to say this. Incentive, incentive, predictive well, of future. Well, behavior. and incentives, and incentives. Yes, you do. Yeah, you do want to go and punish people for that. Uh, but uh, I see. So, like, like you know, in the real world, blame and incentives are to, are correlated, but. Mm-hmm. You know, there are plenty of cases where the correlation is pretty weak or non-existent, or like I mean, maybe even negative. And in in such cases, you know, to, you know so like, like to me, the moral thought experiments go very strongly towards saying actually the blame is highly is is highly relevant, despite the fact that you know, like and, and if we could do like the multiple the multiple moral regression, like what really matters, the consequences or the blame? I say, look, at least at, at least both of them matter. The blame matters to some degree as well. Right now, this is the kind of thing where. I will claim that almost everyone who is a consequentialist actually is using common sense morality in real life. You know, like you know, if you know, like when, when they're considering whether to blame, when their blame is at stake, like I can't say any time I've seen a consequentialist actually pause and think, well, what incentives am I giving here? Instead, there is a normal reaction of, look, you caused this, your respons- your responsibility, you fixed it, right? Or of course, another key part of blame is asking, look, you did something that seems like is totally blameworthy. Tell me your excuse. 
right? And again, there's a bunch of excuses that are quite good, like I was late for the interview because I stumbled upon a Peter Singer baby in a pool and I had to rush in and save the baby's life. And so, oh, well, in that case, it's totally forgivable that you were late. On the other hand, it's like, well, I was late because I just, well, I didn't feel like getting out of bed. Not a very good excuse, not one that most people will accept. So part of the book is I do want to actually just explore the philosophy of blame from this moral pluralist perspective of saying that consequences aren't the only thing that matters. Blame is, a, is an independent moral concept that we should think about and that actually not only do I say that, that we should act on, but almost everyone in practice thinks they should act on it. It's, there's a high theory that people have saying it doesn't matter, but almost nobody really believes it, uh, you know, deep down. Uh, at least this, this. I guess I just have to. I, I just wouldn't say that most consequentialists say that blame doesn't. Well, matter. again, blame matter, matters because yeah, it's yes. indicative of consequences. Yes, matters. Or... Matters intrinsically. Matters intrinsically. Okay. Right. So uh, is is, well, then, of, yeah, is of intrinsic uh, importance. Um, and yes, then that'll yes, be your strong yes, consequence. Yes. I think that. So so <laughs> yeah, that so that's sort of the, sort of the lead in, and then the rest of the book is going to be on the theme of what are the big causes of poverty in the world that are in fact blameworthy. So there's a lot of causes which uh, you could say, well, nobody really is responsible. So like gravity causes poverty, maybe. All right, well, no one's responsible. No one, no one's to blame for gravity. So not a very, not a very interesting thing. But the, the you know, the rest of the book will be on social science, uh, which you know, filtered through this moral philosophy, saying, look, um, you know, so like you know, you know, for, for you know, so you know, like so there's basically three causes that I'm going to focus on. So one of them is just bad, pol bad economic policy in the third world, which I say, you know, like you know, this. You know, poverty in the third world could have been cured decades ago if only third world countries had had halfway decent economic policies, right? Um, and who's to blame? Yes, also again, you know, so like anyone who voted for the policies, politicians who politicians implemented the policies, and there again, I'll say, look, what's your excuse? It's like, well, I didn't know. Well, if you didn't know anything about economics, you shouldn't be voting. It's, you know, it's like it's not that big of a sacrifice. Or like you know, there's a politician saying, look, I had to do it in order to be. I needed to do it in order to gain power. It's like, well, so. You didn't really have to have power there. You could you could have taken you could have gotten a position and then done the right thing for as long as you could, but you didn't choose to do that. Um, so again, yeah, and all these cases, I'm applying this uh, you know, general ethical approach that I learned from my humor of starting from very ordinary mundane cases of moral evaluation, and then saying you know people with power are not really different from anyone else. The fact that you have a lot of power. If anything means there should be heightened scrutiny of your of your of your of your moral choices, not reduced scrutiny, because with great power comes comes great responsibility, as Spider Man taught us for all time. Uh, sure, the idea was around before. So anyway, and then particular for third world third world countries, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm planning on putting a lot of attention into the um, you know regulatory efforts to keep multinational corporations out. As, you know, there's some great social science on how wonderful multinational corporations are, especially in the third world. Mm -hmm. How multinationals. Uh, you know, like, in general, companies in the third world are very poorly managed, except multinationals. Multinationals mm -hmm. take resources that someone, you know, human and, and cultural and social capital resources that other people might throw up their hands and say, what, you, what can you do? You can't build a decent company in Bangladesh. And multinational companies, multinationals go in there and they do it. This is in the data. Multinationals take, resource, take human and other resources that other people might say they're no good, you can't do it with them, and they do it, right? Which is an amazing result. And what this means is that uh, you know, if only multinationals could just take over everything, if only they could just be allowed to step in and and run third world economies, and like they would not be third world economies for very long if this would occur. 
So, and there's, there's of course a lot of effort by third world company, third world countries out of pride and nationalism and a bunch of other things that I consider horrible vices to stop this and say, look, you know, swallow your pride, swallow your nationalism, just accept that this is what should be done. Just, you know, like humble yourself before superior organization and admit that you have something that you meant that you have so much to learn. There's a reason why Bangladesh is Bangladesh. And it's not because there's some great wisdom there. There's there's a, there's some wisdom. I'm sure there's plenty. There's some great things in Bangladesh, but mostly they have to learn from the West and not the other way around. And that's just the way it is. Uh, so that's one thing I'm going to talk about. I'm going to have another big section on immigration restrictions in the first world as being another culpable cause of poverty in the world. And then the last, you know, and then the last one is I'm just going to talk about irresponsible behavior. And again, this is where I will probably be distancing myself from EA people the most. Because this is, this is where I think that there is great wisdom in this classic distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor. Some of which, of course, you could try to reduce to incentives, but I don't think that reduction real, you know, is, in, is, is, is in any way fundamental. And say, look, we, uh, we, they're, they're, on the one hand, there are people who are poor through no fault of their own. And I say those are the people that should be, should be prioritized very strongly. And then there are other people who are poor through their own bad choices, right? And, you know, not be, not, and not bad choices that are complicated. Ones that they know exactly what the consequences are, but they do it anyway, right? And those, those, those are the cases, where, you know, so again, like, you know, people, people with drinking problems, it's not some big mystery that if they drink a lot, they're going to lose their job and hurt their family. They know this. It's obvious to almost everybody, but they do it anyway, right? And, you know, so my view is that is culpable, that is culpable behavior. They should just stop. I, uh, so going back to my argument with Robin, I don't believe it's a disease or anything like that. I think that's, that is an excuse that people use in order to excuse the bad behavior, right? And so I say at minimum, people, uh, people who, resp who are responsible for their, uh, for their own problems should be prioritized last in the, in, uh, in, in, the, in the triage queue for who gets help. And How much effort would you be willing to put in to figure out who's deserving? That yes. to me seems like a bigger issue than whether right. we should distinguish between deserving right. and undeserving. So, well, in the, you know, so I'm going to put a lot of effort in because it's, I'm writing a book on it. Of course, once we once I write the book, then other people who think I'm reliable don't have to put much effort in at all because they can just go and refer to the book. I guess in actually book. implementing these yes. things. Yes. Like, so, you know, like, you know, I don't think it's that hard for the most part, right? Because there are, there, you know, there, there, there is a pretty short list of things that a healthy, able-bodied adult can do to not be in poverty, right? Uh, so, you know, you know, get, you know, get a, a full-time job, don't show up on the job drunk, use contraception until, until you're ready to have kids, right? You know, these, these are some pre a pretty simple list of things which actually do work very well if they're applied, right? And again, especially, for the, especially if you are in the first world, of course, right? And, and they're not that hard to figure out, right? In fact, they're, they're pretty obvious, you know, even so... So you know that that's right start. Now you say, well, aren't there borderline cases? Of course. Yeah. So you're talking about first world stuff. Yes. I guess I'm imagining like give directly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. The reason that it's successful is because they don't spend any time trying right. to, and like maybe ah, I'm sure they do. So well, I, I so so give directly. It's true they don't put a lot of time at the individual level, but they do things like, uh, you, know, you know, so they go to an area of the world where poverty is much more likely to not be the not be the fault of the person. That's step one, right? Is you know you go to some place yeah. like Kenya where even people who work really hard and, and and try their best and don't drink and do everything right in the Puritan playbook would still be poor, so that's where that's mm -hmm. where it starts. Um, you know again I, like so if I like you know, if I were them if I could think of some way to funnel the funnel the money to kids who I would say are almost always not culpable right because like you're a kid what are you gonna do 
right? Like, you know, so go to five-year-old, solve your problem, like, like do the responsible thing, kid. Like, the kid doesn't know what to do. The kid can't get a job, like, not like nothing that could get him out of poverty anyway. So, I mean, you know, I mean, I see Give Directly as doing a pretty good job of actually trying to target the money at people who are genuinely deserving. Although, I mean, again, like the, there are other other limits they could they could use with kids. Of course, there's always the issue of it's hard to help them without helping the parents too. So, you know, there you may say, well, the parent, the parent, and it's yeah. hard to give money to yes. only some people. Right. I mean, they have trouble even with doing the control mm-hmm. trials because it's you know right. just seems so unfair to everyone around them. So, I mean, it mm-hmm. just ends up making sense that everyone in this village gets the money. Right. So, you know, first world countries where there's better record keeping that I think is pretty easy. It's mostly that people don't even want to try, but don't even want to try. Um, so, and again, there, there is this resentment of the idea of deserving versus undeserving poor. And again, sort of a philosophy of no one can really help anything that they're doing. Um, which, uh, which, which, again, which again, of course, there's always the reply. The determinist reply is always, well, we can still affect incentives. So that's still, there's still a reason to go and condition it. But I, you know, my view is there's there's this even stronger argument of look at like incentives aside, really some people are more deserving of help than others. Uh, so anyway, so I, mean, I want to want to put time into that and just you know, like, like you know like read the social science more. So I mean I've done I've done like one paper on poverty before, just looking at behavioral differences between the rich and the poor, and there are big behavioral differences between rich and poor, which again are not just. Things, uh, you know, you know, things where it's not, you know, you know, like you say, look, yeah, they're like, you know, rich kids go and work harder in school. And you say, well, you know, maybe poor kids just, you know, really wouldn't have the ability to do it, or maybe it's just they're just too distracted by the gunfire or whatever. But things, the things that are really basic, like you know, don't, you know, like uh, use contraception if you're if you're going to have sex and you're not ready to have a kid. Uh, you know, go and get a job and don't don't you know, don't argue with the boss and don't show up drunk. You know, like a very short list of things that are obvious in practice, but a lot of people just don't feel like doing them. Uh, like a book that's uh, that's been influential on me, although the authors might might not like my endorsement. There's a book called Promises I Can Keep, which is this ethnography of single moms in Philadelphia. And what's what's striking is you know the single moms usually actually you know they're still with their boyfriends when their when their kids are born, but within five years they've broken up. And when they're asked, so why is it that he's not still around? Uh, say well. Uh, you know, so is it that you know, is it, well, will it be like he wasn't contributing anything? He was just a loser. And say, well, was the problem that he couldn't get a job? And the usual answer is no, no. They got jobs all the time. They just couldn't keep jobs. So it's not that there are no jobs or it's not possible. It's that the guys they're with, like like they would argue with the boss, or they get angry, or they yell at a customer, or they show up drunk, or they wouldn't show up at all. Right. So again, things that I would say are just basic common sense, and it's not that someone doesn't understand them. It's just they don't feel like doing it. Which you know, who does? Right? <laughs> Who does feel like having to conform to other people or do this stuff, but still, uh, it's the responsible thing to do. Hmm. So that's quite different than I thought yes, it would yeah. be. <laughs> but that will be interesting. It occurs to me that, um, yeah, I guess it, you could just say it's a matter of looking at it in different mm-hmm. time frames. Like, this is the kind of thing that I would, as a consequentialist, like, feel it's more appropriate to think about before. Mm-hmm. You know, like, am I blameworthy in the sense that like am I able to do something now mm-hmm. and like I just unless it, you're talking about you know future interactions it just seems like well that's water under the bridge mm-hmm. whatever happened in the past uh, unless we have to like punish right, someone right. for criminal actions right, or something right. like that but um, but this could be this could be very mm-hmm. interesting and I bet it'd be easy to read it from a consequentialist view if you mm-hmm. just imagined you're talking about before instead of after yeah yeah, yeah, yeah sure so I mean I, I mean I would say that you know if you are a consequentialist and a determinist then the book will not make that much sense to you because you'll be reading and saying, well, why should we be focusing on what the blameworthy causes of poverty rather than the actionable causes of poverty? 
right? And there's some overlap, but the, the overlap, but but it's not an, but it's far, but not hardly a perfect overlap. I don't know why you think consequentialism can't be at bottom, you know, like describe uh, heuristics that we still operate. I mean, by, it's it's fine, it's fine as heuristic, but then the key idea of heuristic is if it clearly doesn't apply, then you don't, then you break it. Yeah, but I mean, it just very yes. clearly often does mm-hmm. apply to, to to act like right. deontologists yes. or say like, hey, you shouldn't have done right. that. Or this yeah, I mean, like, like for example, like one thing I'm not going to be talking about is, is a blameworthy cause of poverty is people in rich countries not giving all their surplus money away to people in poor countries, right? And that's interesting yes, and, yeah, on what yes, grounds? <laughs> right. And even not, and like not well, not for the argument that it couldn't be done. It could be done, but from the argument that it's you know that's not blameworthy because it's not morally morally reasonable to expect people to help strangers to that extent. So you know in the background here is an idea of that's what philosophers call supererogatory. Just like in general, like you know, doing a lot of giving a lot of help to a total stranger with no expectation of help in return. In my view, you know, this is a classic case of something that's above and beyond the call of duty. So it's great, you know, it's fine to go and praise someone for doing it, but you shouldn't go and criticize someone for not doing it. Right and well, I think for instrumental. Yes, yes, no, no, no. But yeah, but I yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I mean, like, who knows about instrumentally? Maybe actually going and and uh, criticizing everyone who doesn't who like waste waste money on uh, luxuries for themselves. Uh, Maybe you actually could go and harangue them. Well, that was the other reason I thought that property who's to blame could be interesting because people do sometimes really respond to the. Mm I mean, they, you know, you can make all the arguments in the world for why it'd be a good thing for them to do, but unless they feel like they've got some skin in the game or they'll look bad, you know, if they don't do it. Okay, so you have one, uh, I think your first blog post I ever read was How to Create a Beautiful Bubble. And (laughs) I feel so, I just, if I may tell you about my personal conflict, I feel so conflicted about it. I feel like it's my responsibility to, like, be open to, you know, and be able to respond to anything anybody says. And then it seems like that's also a value you hold, mm-hmm. you know, like we should be truth seeking. And um, and I get the sense that, you you know, no excuses, you don't shy away from mm-hmm. just inconvenient arguments. But also, you know, you advocate. So it's like, I'll put it in the show notes, you know, it's 12 steps mm-hmm. for how to disconnect, divorce your society mm-hmm. who doesn't get you and then quixotically visit it, you say. Right. Um, so... I've tried. I followed its advice for periods mm-hmm. of time and quite liked it, um, but I still feel like morally squicky about mm-hmm. it. And I'm just curious how you reconcile that. Right. Well, since I'm not a consequentialist, then it's really easy for me because I don't think I have any duty to make the world as good as possible. Uh, so maybe, maybe some maybe some duty to improve it somewhat. And I think I think I'm doing that. I mean, just by writing blog posts like that that makes some total strangers feel like, like help, help total strangers improve their lives. I think I should get some credit for that. Uh, you yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so they made this, so that you know, so like not being a consequentialist, that takes away almost all of my guilt about all, about almost everything that I do. Because like, well, did I murder anyone today? No. Did I go and go out of my way to go and hurt somebody's feelings? No. Well, then like I'm 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 I'm, I'm, do, I'm yeah, yeah, But you yes. feel you yes. seem to have great reverence for the uh, sure, sure. respect. Although, you know, what I would, so again, I would, I would consider like, like, a, you know, a lot of what I'm doing as, again, as supererogatory going above and beyond the cause of the call of duty. So I've made it my profession to be someone who studies the world and tries to understand it. So I hold myself to higher standards. If there was a person who just wasn't very interested in understanding the world very much, but they weren't, you know, like, like you know, but they're not, they weren't a liar or anything. They just said, well, I just don't care about that very much. I'm, I'm a plumber or whatever. I said, well, great. So you're a plumber. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a professional truth seeker. If there was a plumber who insisted on being very politically active with very, very foolish views, I might criticize them for that. 
and say, look, well, if you're going to be a plumber and you're not going to read anything about politics, then you shouldn't participate in politics. That's the problem. See Jason Brennan's book, The Ethics of Voting, which is a, a great book. But if you just want to be apolitical, that's you know fine, fine by me. I mean, some of my very favorite people are totally apolitical people. They're often some of the nicest people as well. So I mean, those you know. So again, what bothers me is people who are very politically active but still still don't care very much about testing their views against against the facts. Um, so yeah, I mean, I so I do have this very puritanical view, but again, of course, that itself is not all the consequentialist. If I were a real consequentialist, I would be saying things like, well. On the one hand, this view isn't true, but on the other hand, it makes me really unhappy to think about it, and nobody listens to me anyway, so I'm just going to go and believe what I want to believe. Uh, well, that's yes. uh, Well, <laughs> it, it depends upon the question. Whether it, a consequentialist yeah, depends would really on, say on, that. Depends on I the mean, question. if they're thinking about it. Well, you know, so there's, you know, there's, there's a time frame. Well, there, there's the, I'm just not going to worry about this very much, and I'm not going to intellectually scrutinize it much. You can choose that. And that I'm just going to believe whatever I believe without much effort. Take the path of least resistance. And again, if you're not going to actually do much harm to the world, you might say this is a great thing and by consequentialist terms, but I'm too much of a, too much of a Puritan to go along with that and say, no, well, yes, it won't, it doesn't make the world worse, but it makes you worse. Not in some happiness sense, but just in the sense that a person who's living a lie is just a worse person to be than someone who's not doing that. So, I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing that would make other... Uh, other so have you not divorced society then? Um, is that you know, just like, advice for someone who wants... So most of the time I'm not interacting with society. <laughs> most of the time I'm doing... Most of my day I'm doing my thing. And then when I choose to interact, when, I, like, when, so like when, I, when I'm writing something, that's when I'm interacting and that's where I, I, make, I make a point. And I said, look, I, now I really do have to listen to everybody that's, that's talking about this in order to do a good job. But, you know, if I were to so like if I were to say, look, I'm going to give up doing nonfiction. I'm just going to become. I'm just going to start writing fiction. So I think that could be a totally worthy life and a worthy life. And then I wouldn't need to be worrying about this stuff uh, very much. Uh, then I could have a much more sealed bubble. Then it would just be a matter of like, is my fiction good? And like, am I giving value to people who like my fiction? And then it wouldn't. Then it wouldn't. There wouldn't be. It wouldn't really be any issue any longer about. Do you worry about the the enmity and isolation it seems to create hmm. when people self-select into their own info hmm. bubbles? So, I mean, the the enmity, I, I think, like, like like that's when you actually aren't really self-selecting. Uh, although you, uh, that's that's when you are deliberately going and finding horrible things about outsiders to go and share with each other. So you might, I think, I think actually one of my steps is don't bond with people over over stuff that you all dislike. Over dislikes, dislike. yeah, bond with each other over shared likes. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, so like, you know, so the bubble, the, the negative bubbles where all you do is share the worst thing on earth that someone on the other side did. Yeah, that's terrible. And that makes people miserable. But see, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's often quite difficult to distinguish. It's interesting. I'm sort of, and, and effective altruism is at a funny place mm-hmm. in between in a lot of different circles. And so I see this a lot where, you know, what's a positive story is like, a story about how somebody stood up to like someone harassing someone on the bus and like that person was like the worst person ever and this is a big problem and then you know if and then therefore if you think that something else is a bigger problem than that Uh that's you're so bad you know and it's not nobody has to say at any point like you Mm -hmm. know that people who have different priorities are terrible it's just sort of like even through all shared Mm -hmm. likes it seems possible to right I mean so much of it is just framing of course you could have the story about isn't this a great person or isn't this a terrible person that was crushed most of the stuff that that uh, well, 
most of the stuff that that I that causes me to unfollow people on Facebook is the second stuff, or the second kind of stuff, where someone shares something about some horrible incident involving someone they hate, and I, just, like, I never need. I, again, this is normally what. I, so if there's someone that I know and like, and I've got positive interaction, I don't unfollow them for that. But if there's someone on Facebook, like I don't know even know who you are, can't remember any way you've ever made my day better, and you're sharing news of a terrorist attack, I'm just you know, like, no, I never want to hear from you again for as long as I live. Uh, <laughs> So that, uh, that, that, so that's, and, and of course, it's like even milder things, like you know, like something someone said the wrong thing to somebody. I'm just just gonna delete that, um, or you know, so delete the person. I mean, I, I don't unfriend people for that. You know, unfriend people for like like actually you know, like expressing hostility. You know, like every now and then, I have a friend who just starts expressing extreme hostility to me. And like, well, I don't know who you are, and you asked to be my friend, and now you seem to hate me. So <laughs> we don't really have to be friends in a way. I guess we never were. So. Uh, We'll just terminate this. Uh, I mean, even there, I always try to tell myself. I think this is actually one of, one of the, one of the points in the bubble is, you know, don't don't tell don't don't I don't tell myself this is a horrible person. I try to say, look, this is just not a good match. We're just not meant to be with, be with each other as friends, even on Facebook, even at that minimal level, we're not meant for each other. Okay. Well, uh, on that note, so it's not to waste any more of your time. I'm going to move it to okay, rapid, rapid fire, fire, and I'm going to administer your ideological Turing okay. test. Okay, so here's your tearing test, mm-hmm. Brian. Uh, what is your best case against iconoclasm or against uh, expressing extreme views or disagreeing too heartily with uh, mainstream views? Yeah, so I mean, probably the main one is just that you're hurting a lot of people's feelings for no real for for no actual tangible benefit. Uh, you know, the odds that you actually will change the world are vanishingly slim, but the odds that you're going to go and upset someone and mess their day up is quite noticeable. So that's, uh, you know, that, that's one. I mean, personally, like, like, you know, my iconoclasm, I normally have an opt-in rule where, like, I don't, I, like, when I, was, when I was a teenager, I would actually go and, like, hunt people down and say, here's why God doesn't exist. Uh, like, I would, I would never do that anymore. I would wait for someone else to bring up the subject or, you know, I may post it on, like, my, you know, like, well, like you know, I, may, I may publish it. But again, the whole idea is nobody reads what I'm writing unless they actually come to me. It's not, I'm, I'm not, like, emailing it to the Vatican or something to say, wise up people. Um, so uh, why won't yeah, you answer yeah. me? Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and then I guess, I guess the other thing you can say against iconoclasm is, you know, in practice, probably a lot of iconoclasts just do get caught up in the sheer joy of smashing, uh, smashing icons, which is what iconoclasm originally refers to is just smashing icons just because. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, I think I would say that, you know, like, you know, like, like, you know, you know the danger of iconoclasm is that you know like, like it's easy to fall in love with the act with, with with the mood rather than the underlying motive of seeking truth and uh, and uh, and trying to plow through or to get rid to to get rid of popular but wrong ideas. So so yeah, I think I say that. Okay, well you totally passed. Okay. I would believe that. <laughs> if you want to offer your quick like rebuttal to that, um, just to get the record mm-hmm. straight, then feel free. Right. Again, so I mean, I like I would say like the op, the opt in rule for iconoclasm is something I actually I actually believe in. So that's in a way like to my fellow iconoclasts, I, or especially like to my younger iconoclasts. I think it's younger. This is a lot. Most of this is a function of youth. Just say, look, go and talk to someone that wants to hear what you have to say. At least maybe like you know like going and chasing after people like like and just like ranging them. Like there's there's really no point to that. It doesn't it doesn't help anyone. You're just going to be unhappy. You don't, you're never going to change their minds that way. And yeah, you know, like, so you know, just 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 relax, you know, re- relax, young person. Uh, you know, there's 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 so much more to life than what than what you're doing here, and 
especially with the internet, you know, like you can find people who want to listen to you. So find, you know, find them out and you know, do something more constructive. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, so we're going to move on to our other rapid okay. fire question, which is: uh, So, do you have a blog or book recommendations? Sure. So, I'm a big promoter uh, promoter of Philip Tetlock. So, his uh, earlier book, Expert Political Judgment, uh, is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, then his uh, you know, you know, Super Forecasting, even better, I would say. So, these are two fantastic books. Mm-hmm. Let's see other things. Uh, this uh, past year when I was uh, homeschooling my eighth graders in European history, I actually dug up the same two volume series that taught me European history when I was in high school. And it's great. And they liked it a lot. I still like it a lot. So there's a, a historian named Carlton Hayes, who in 1915 wrote a two volume history of Europe from 1500 to 1915. And it's a very fun read. He's a super opinionated. He doesn't sound like, you know, like he's, you know, he's the kind of historian who will tell you that a specific king was a fool or a clod or a pervert or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, it's fun to read. And I, and like most of what I know about European history, I actually learned from these two volumes. Uh, and, the, and the guy, and he wrote it when he was only about 30 years old. And then he lived till he's almost 90, I think. So he has a bunch of other books. So I actually have gone back. I'm, I'm reading some of his other books right now. So he's really fun. And just like, if you ever find, if you find modern historians boring, this guy is not boring. I mean, he's, sometimes he's crazy or doesn't know what he's talking about, but still, it's so fun. Um, let's mm-hmm. see. And then, um, so like I'm a big graphic novel person. So why don't I think of some great graphic novels? Yes. Yeah, so The Cartoon History of the Universe by Larry Gonick. So this is, um, okay. you know, just like, like like this this again like if I could do anything half as good as this I'd be so proud of myself. So it's <laughs> it's actually five volumes. It appears to only be three because there's Cartoon History of the Universe Volume One, Two, and Three, and but then probably for sales they retitled the la- volumes four and five as Cartoon History of the Modern World Volume One and Two, but they're meant to be read as a five five, five volume series. And this whole thing's tremendous. Uh, so, and again, probably one of the Great. best ways of learning history, learning human history. So fun and yeah, very iconoclastic. You know, he is the kind of historian where, you know, he, who doesn't just say, but actually draws the fact that almost every historical figure with the words, the great after his name was a mass murderer. And you know, <laughs> so that's, and that's worth knowing and it's worth seeing, uh, you know, in pictures too, just to really drive it home. Just to know like, like, what people like Alexander the Great or Columbus actually did, and so horrifying, and yet people still talk about how wonderful they were because they were successful leaders, right? You know, imagine applying that standard to the 20th century. Well, those are very original yes. recommendations. We haven't had any graphic <laughs> recommendations. Yeah. Maybe we'll add it to our rapid fire. All right, fire all right, list. great. So we got two more rapid all fire all right, questions. All right, sure. Uh, most underappreciated insight from economics. Most underappreciated insight from economics. I think I've got to. Yeah. I guess it doesn't have to be most. What is yes. an important? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I, like I will go with most. So, like the the, like the <laughs> incredible effect of or, you know, the incredible negative effect of immigration restrictions on on, on 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 global global wealth. So, I mean, economists spent all this time talking about the wonders of free trade. The truth is that the world is actually pretty close to free trade right now. So, like mm-hmm. like the actual economic gains of going from where we are now to to just no restrictions are pretty small. Whereas the economic gains from going from the incredible level of restrictions we have on labor to anything approaching a free market is tremendous. And yet it gets maybe 10 articles on the whole topic. And this appears to be the single most beneficial economic policy change that anyone's ever identified. And yet 
hardly gets any attention at all. So that'll I'll go with that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> and for more, people can yes. rewind to earlier yes. in the podcast. Yes, yeah, or just, um, just, just Google uh, trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk. So article by Michael Clemens, and it's actually ungated. So great article. Well, we will link that then. Check yep. the show notes. Okay, last question. Uh, who do you think is, well, it doesn't have to be the most, an underappreciated thinker that you'd like to bring to the attention of our listeners? Let's see. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to go with Phil Tetlock. So he's famous, but not nearly as famous as he ought to be. I mean, again, to me, to me, yeah. he is. I mean, so like when I when when there's a profile of him, I think it was for the Chronicle of Higher Education. I don't think they ever used it, but but I said, you know, like to me, you know, like he's more than just a great social scientist. He's a prophet. He's someone who holds up a mirror. He's someone who holds up a mirror to us and and says, repent, repent, stop, like live. <laughs> like you need to stop doing what you're doing and live a different kind of life. Stop you uh, stop abusing language. Stop going and hiding behind vague adjectives and 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 deliberately and deliberately sneaky modal modal words like necessarily or whatever and just try mm-hmm. and just humble yourself before the truth, say things that uh, that we get can be definitely be, be verified as having happened or not happened. You know like like you know like get you know, get get rid of the words that make sentences false. You know, and just you know, and just you know, you know, li- li- you know, live a pure and true life of saying things that are correct from now on, right? Uh, so I don't think he, I don't know, I don't think he would be comfortable actually with this. But you know, you know, to me, this is like some. <laughs> sometimes a prophet doesn't realize he's a prophet. Sometimes they don't realize like how like like how deep what they're doing really is. I mean, like when you know, when I read his stuff, I mean, I like I do say like this is just terrible what most people are doing. The way people think about the world is just so wrong, and not in some subtle way. It's terrible in some demonstrable, clear way that what they're doing is exactly the opposite of what you would do if you wanted to understand the world. So, and it's not hard. Just repent and do it right. <laughs> it had been a long time when I listened to Super Intelligent, or sorry, not Super Intelligence, <laughs> Super Forecasting. Um, but since a book had really just made mm-hmm. me like think, oh no, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and really, and and yeah, feel the the repentance, like. Yeah. I didn't really feel guilty because yeah. I thought like, well, I've been trying my best, but mm-hmm. like, my God, it's so obvious. Like, why haven't yeah. we been I mean, trying? like to me, like, I mean, I felt like I knew a lot about it, but I still learned a tremendous amount. So I didn't even know about this stuff on how the, like the, the, the range of numbers that, that, that humans attach to uh, seeming, uh, seemingly to, to adjectives that sound like probabilities, things like, you know, like, like yes. the, like, like almost certain, you know, like almost certain or very likely or more likely than not. Just the, like this, like this very wide range of what people. Yeah, there was the, the parable about the intelligence director yeah. or something who right. investigated that. That was shocking. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, to me, like I could see like plus or minus ten percentage points range, but seeing you know like when someone says a distinct possibility that some people think that means twenty percent and others think it means eighty percent, and it's like <laughs> what a terrible, what two terrible words that they could, could convey such totally different things in the minds of listeners. Well. I will let you okay. go. All We're right. on two All right. hours All right. this, now. This has been awesome. So Lots of thank fun. you so much, Brian, for being on the podcast. Okay. Thanks for listening. Now enjoy our theme song, written and performed by Chris Baker.